Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp here for New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Professor of History Cecil Vidal. She teaches at the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences in Paris. We're going to be discussing her new book, Caribbean New Orleans, Empire, Race, and the Making of a Slave Society, published earlier this, this year by the University of North Carolina Press and the Omohundro Institute. Welcome to the show, Professor Vidal. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the questions, let's discuss the cover a bit. Uh, what is on your the cover of your book and how what was the process of image selection? So the cover combines two drawings. On the top, you can see a drawing of New Orleans made by Jean-Pierre Lassus in 1726, eight years after the founding of the Louisiana capital. And on the bottom, there's a drawing of Cap Francais, the most important port city of Saint-Domingue, that is present-day Haiti, located in the northern province of the French section of the island. And this drawing was made by Simon Dussault de la Grave in 1717. Ships coming from Europe or Africa to New Orleans had to stop in the Antilles to repair damage or to stock up on water, wood, and food supplies, and most of them stopped in Cap Francais. The cover illustrates the influence Saint-Domingue exercised on New Orleans as a result of these connections. And in the book, I argue that it's impossible to understand New Orleans society without taking into account the relationships the city maintained with the Antilles, and especially Saint-Domingue, fruit out the 18th century. What prompted you to study race and slavery in New Orleans during the 18th century? And how do you define slave society? And, and why did you decide to decenter North America and focus on greater Caribbean contexts? My initial goal was to study the formation of a new urban society in a colonial situation. And New Orleans is a fascinating fascinating case study because the city was founded very late in 1718 and was located at the western margin of the French Empire. And the circumstances of its birth were necessarily different from those of other prominent port cities such as Saint-Pierre in Martinique or Cap Francais in Saint-Domingue, established in the 17th century. Thus, New Orleans emerged within an Atlantic world that was marked by advanced integration, the consolidation of several Europe and Atlantic empires, the rise of the Atlantic slave trade, the multiplication of slave societies within the tropical and subtropical zone of the Americas, and a general but differentiated racialization. New Orleans thus constitutes an ideal place to evaluate the impact of ongoing Atlantic dynamics on new colonial societies, including the expansion of racial slavery in the Americas. In my view, what characterized a slave society was the way slavery came to shape all social institutions and relationships. The importance of the enslaved in the overall population and system of production was necessary, but it was not a sufficient condition. Labor was central in defining slavery in the New World, as slaves there spent most of their time toiling under harsh conditions. But American chattel slavery was more than a labor regime. It was also a form of ownership 
and a specific kind of social domination. Enslaved people could be exploited in dreadful ways because they were legally considered chattel property. As slavery meant holding human beings as possessions, enslaved people found themselves under the permanent personal domination of owners who could control every aspect of their lives, not only their work, and could even take their lives with impunity in practice, if not in law, and dispose of their children. When this violent and abusive system was applied to a large section or even to a vast majority of the overall population, what to be forcibly dropped from abroad, the all free society, both slave owners and, non- and free non-slave owners, had to be committed to its perpetuation. Since this highly unequal and exploitative social order could never become self-evident and remain contested and resisted, slavery thus necessarily operated as a regime of collective governance that involved all free people while reflecting the preeminent political and social position of slave owners. With such a definition of a slave society, the book claims that it's more accurate to view 18th century New Orleans as a Caribbean port city rather than as a North American one. Its late founding, its position within the French Empire, and its connection with Saint-Domingue explain why the interplay of slavery and race profoundly informed its society from the outset. Although Louisiana struggled to develop a full-fledged plantation economy, the colony succeeded in establishing a slave society very early on that was profoundly shaped by race. When I started to study the interplay of slavery and race in French New Orleans, I did not initially plan to demonstrate that the expansion of racial slavery spread from the Antilles to North America and that Saint-Domingue and Louisiana maintain the same kind of connection than Barbados and South Carolina. But the importance of the French Antilles, and especially Saint-Domingue, played in the development of a slave society and the racialization of the slave society, quickly appeared over and over in the archives. And for instance, the company of the Indies employee Marc-Antoine Caillot stated in his travel account that the Louisiana authorities and settlers were trying to create, I quote, a second Saint-Domingue. How does your study situate microhistory in the same framework of analysis as a history of the French metropole and its colony? For instance, what what examples can you provide of crown enforcement of the 1724 adoption of specific codes from the 1685 Lesser Antilles Code Noir? Caribbean New Orleans develops a microhistory of race within the city because it combines a legal and institutional perspective on racial formation with the complementary approach of studying race in the individual interactions of daily life within the urban center. The book is based on all primary sources available, including administrative correspondence and files, passenger lists, censuses, military rolls, land grants, list of plantations, sacramental records, notarial deeds, court records, travel accounts, private correspondence, maps, engraving and drawings. Among these primary sources, the court records, the judicial archives, are the most valuable. Thanks to the myriad anecdotes 
told by defendants and witnesses in their judicial interrogatories and testimonies, the doings of all historical actors have been captured in the city streets, at church and in taverns, in workshops, stores, and domestic interiors, in the marketplace and at court, as they talked, socialized, exchanged, and dealt with one another. The judicial proceedings offer an extraordinary window into the daily lives and social worlds of New Orleans dwellers. They allowed me to analyze the manifestation and expressions of racialization in the fabric of everyday life. At the same time, Caribbean New Orleans is also, is also a kind of cis-Atlantic history, as the book studies the impact of Atlantic dynamics on a specific location and highlights that among all the connections that New Orleans maintained with the rest of the Atlantic world, those with Saint-Domingue were, were crucial. While locating New Orleans within a greater Caribbean world, it's also essential to consider the metropole and the colony in the same framework of analysis. Beside the French Antilles, the French metropole had a huge impact on the way French New Orleans society developed. Not only did the Connoir was promulgated in Louisiana in 1724 from the metropole, but the ancien régime culture of the French kingdom helps to explain the way colonial authorities and settlers behave toward the enslaved. I will give only one example of this phenomenon. Fruct out the French regime, following a practice established in the Antilles, the New Orleans executioner was always a slave who either remained in bondage or was granted his freedom as a reward for his work. At first sight, this practice seems to contradict the racial order on which slave society were based because a black man was allowed to punish white people. U.S. historians of French Louisiana have often interpreted this phenomena as a sign of fluid racial dynamics. However, a different interpretation appears when one treats French New Orleans society as an ancien regime society influenced by the metropole. According to the sociopolitical and religious norm, values, and conception of the social order of such societies, the power the black executioner exercised was only a delegation of the king's power. The monarch himself held his judicial power from God, which the coronation ceremony symbolized with the gift of the hand of justice and the sword. Inflicting corporal punishment and death in particular transgressed the frontier between the sacred and the profane. Hence, the executioner was considered impure and infamous. His touch polluted the convict and thereby corporal punishment both broke pain and conveyed shame. So far from being a sign of racial blindness, the use of a black man as an executioner to punish white people reflected the early embedding of race in this new slave society. Please briefly trace the transition of Louisiana province, the so-called Mississippi River Colony, from John Law's financial aims in the Company of the West system to the Company of the Indies' uh, 1721-22 importation of African slaves and, a decade later, the resumption of royal rule, free trade, stoppages on direct African imports, that surge in slave imports from the greater Caribbean, and of course, endorsement of the Saint-Domingue model. 
In the first chapter of the book, I analyze all the relations that New Orleans maintain with the rest of the Atlantic world and that influence the development of racial slavery. Because the French crown did not have the means to finance the colonization of Louisiana, it gave its trade monopoly to the Company of the West, later called the Company of the Indies, in 1717. Through the Company of the Indies, Louisiana became part of an ambitious financial and economic plan designed by the Scottish financier John Law to turn France into a commercial nation. The Company of the Indies first heavily invested in Louisiana, bringing around 6,000 civilian migrants, including indentured servants and convicts, from Europe in a few years, and roughly the same number of enslaved captives from Africa. Yet, when the Mississippi bubble burst in 1721, the company started to reduce its investment and to rely primarily on a slave labor force. Then, after the Natchez Wars in 1729-1731, the company decided to relinquish its trade monopoly. Louisiana became again a royal colony administered directly by the crown and its commerce was open to all French merchants authorized to trade in the French Empire. After the 1741, the slave trade from Africa to New Orleans nearly completely stopped. Connections with the Antilles were important from the start, but they became even more crucial once the company released its trade monopoly and ceased to transport African slaves to the Mississippi colony. After 1731, most of the enslaved brought to Louisiana came from the Antilles. Despite the vicissitude the colony underwent, the commitment of Louisiana authorities and colonies to the slave system never wavered as they tried to imitate the Saint-Domingue model. Saint-Domingue had quickly become the fast emerging pearl of the Antilles and they wanted to emulate the successful sugar colony. All migrants experienced the intricacies of a slave society firsthand in Saint-Domingue on their way to Louisiana, and the racial conception of West Indian officials and settlers were also disseminated through the Code Noir and many other media such as books and correspondence. Likewise. Please, please briefly trace the rise of New Orleans from Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville and indigenous peoples as towns, as well as the Natchez Wars that you've already mentioned, perhaps including the, the torture of that Natchez woman and the war widows and orphans, to 1760 stockade construction. In your brief assessment, please address the causes of urban economic integration with plantation surroundings, slaves as rival mobilities, and in quotes, police surveillance. Racial formation in New Orleans was shaped by the connections the port city maintained with the rest of the Atlantic world, but also the relations it developed with its interland, especially with the native villages and outposts located nearby and the plantation regions surrounding the capital. As French settlers and soldiers remain a demographic minority in the Mississippi Valley, the colonial authorities had no choice but to maintain a system of alliances with the native nations they encountered. They developed a system of dual settlements with French outposts and native villages nearby. 
The site of New Orleans was chosen by the Commandant General of Louisiana, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville, with the assistance of indigenous informants in order for the city to rely on nearby native villages for food supply and military assistance in case of attack. All in all, the system of alliances worked in the benefit of both sides. However, war broke out with some native nations and especially the Natchez who lived upriver. Tensions between the Natchez and the French had started to grow early on, but on November 28, 1729, after a dispute with the French commandant over the occupation of native lands to develop tobacco plantations, the Natchez started a war by killing around 250 settlers. The war lasted until 1731. The French defeated the Natchez and tried to exterminate them. And during the conflict, New Orleans dwellers feared an attack on the capital. The governor organized the urban colonists in militia companies. He also ordered the burning by the Tonicas of uh, an alienation of a Natchez woman who was the wife of a Natchez chief. The torture ceremony was organized as a ritual of revenge and expiation for the sufferings of white women during the initial Natchez attack. It also aimed at freeing the colonies from their fear and restoring the colonial order. After the Natchez Wars, New Orleans always represented a sizable part of the colonial population because many settlers took refuge in the city. The city lived in symbiosis with the plantation region that developed up and down river. Both settlers and slaves moved between the plantation and the cities in both directions for various reasons. And after 1741, colonial authorities became uh, increasingly preoccupied with slave unrest and the petit marronage. The petit marronage was the temporary desertion for a, a short period of time. They try, so the, the colonial authorities try to implement different police measures to control slaves' mobility. At the end of the Seven Years' War, Seven Years War local authorities and settlers felt particularly vulnerable as military operations and an epidemic of slave rebellion raged through the Caribbean. They decided to build the wooden stockades that had been planned since New Orleans founding, and they launched a highly repressive campaign against slaves accused of running away and stealing. They could not completely impeach slaves from circulating between the plantation region and the city. Yet the Natchez Wars and the struggle against slave unrest was instrumental in creating a sense of community among white urban dwellers. How and why did public spaces such as the New Orleans Central Square, St. Louis Church, cemeteries, European taverns, slave cabin gardens, and even the streets spur geographic mobility, festivities, racial control, and ritual, as well as racial violence? So in, in Chapter 3, I investigate how the Ancien Régime culture with which officials and settlers came to the colony and which made them highly sensitive to the issue of maintaining their rank in public 
intersected with the process of racialization. As the urban milieu facilitated cross-racial encounters and exchange of all kinds, most whites quickly became aware of the need to maintain some appearance of social superiority and to display and instill the social racial hierarchy by their behavior in the public space. Through segregation in church, exclusions from tavern, and one-sided violence in the street, they try to teach slaves the difference that they believe befit their station. White's ability to make slaves invisible, to segregate them, or to undermine both their physical integrity and dignity in the public space fuel the construction of whiteness. The racialization of space contributed, contributed to, give, to giving white people a shared sense of belonging to an inclusive racial community, despite class and gender fault lines. Whiteness was primarily an experience that was performed and exhibited by the social actors it defined, but it was also vigorously contested by some of the very people of African descent that it tried to subordinate and exclude. As local authorities implicitly acknowledged, some slaves fought back very, for every inch of the street. The small size of French New Orleans and the proximity of repressive forces, however, facilitated social control, even as authorities and colonies were never able to completely overpower slaves' fight for autonomy and dignity. I'm interested in the formation of a slave society in New Orleans. Um, if you can, please address um, in this formation the intimate coexistence of masters and slaves in the same domestic households, racial and gender classifications and censuses, especially after 1732, free people of color, uh, wet nurses, King's Hospital, and the Ursuline Order, the racialization of poverty in charity hospital administration, and even soldiers' as barracks. One or all you can address. <laughs> So chapter four has argued that household needs to be considered as a crucial category of analysis to determine how New Orleans society became racialized. The urban milieu brought people of all conditions and backgrounds together within small residential units. And this intimate coexistence tempered the slave system, which always involved personal interactions in the city. This closeness, however, did not entirely protect urban slaves from exploitation and violence. In spite of slave physical proximity, the law and racial prejudice combined to create social distance and produce discrimination. The way censuses were taken reflected local authorities and settlers' growing efforts to establish a racial line between people of European and African descent within domestic households, while the violence that was inflicted on domestic slaves constituted the means by which this racial divide was created and maintained. Unlike domestic households, the slaves who lived and worked at the hospitals and the convent did not necessarily belong to those in charge of running these residential institutions. Slaves also occasionally visited the barracks where soldiers lived. 
Yet various mechanisms in all these places ensure that the enslaved were always kept in a subordinate position. The relationships between the military and the enslaved, for instance, were made of both circumstantial cooperation and racial tensions. Daily interactions between soldiers and slaves favored solidarity in places theoretically restricted to the troops. The King's Hospital was the site of intimate relationships between the military and the enslaved because white authorities chose to rely on slave labor to take care of patients. Servicemen and slaves also illicitly turned the barrack into the barracks into a semi-public place, subverting the strict separation of soldiers from civilians, including slaves, that the state tried to impose because they needed to exchange goods and services away from the public eye. However, cooperation could, could quickly turn into conflict. And moreover, the streets of New Orleans were the site of many public confrontations related to race in which servicemen were involved against enslaved or free men of color. As the object of social contempt, the military might have been all the more inclined to use violence against slaves in public as their only claim to social respect, honorability and power was their virility as men of war. They were also in competition with enslaved men for the sexual favors of black women and soldiers were instrumental in the construction of whiteness in French New Orleans. How did Europeans' marital culture, the Louisiana Code Noir, various perspectives on New Orleans marriage, uh, concubine practices and the concealment of white fathers, matrilineal enslavement, and varieties of Louisiana metisage reinforce racial domination? Chapter 5 explores how the slave system weakened the European religious and moral ideal that restricted sexuality and the family to Christian marriage. Local demographic and social circumstances made it difficult for the population of European descent to maintain this ideal and to impose it on African and Native American slaves. Despite the Code Noir stated goal, I quote, to maintain the discipline of the Roman Apostolic Catholic Church, unquote, the colony lacked the ecclesiastic forces to evangelize the growing slave population. Missionaries received no assistance from central or local authorities, nor from their lay master, who did not show much interest in integrating the black majority within the Christian community, except for the female congregation. Even when slave holders incited or allowed their laborers to be baptized, they were reluctant to let them wed in church. Moreover, the Code Noir also outlawed interracial marriage and concubinage. This early prohibition was respected most of the time, and consequently, métissage or interracial sexuality developed outside the framework of Christian marriage. Louisiana demographic and social makeup was such that métissage could not but thrive. The discrepancy between law and social practice, for that matter, has often been interpreted as a sign of a lenient racial regime. What has been overlooked 
is the various forms interracial sexuality could take from rape to marriage and what they reveal about the ways the phenomenon of métissage was perceived and handled. The association of métissage with either coerced or consensual sex, illegitimate or legitimate unions, or private in then hidden relationships versus public open ones, changes its social significance. Rather than a general moral and religious disorder, what developed in New Orleans was a multifarious set of sexual and family values and practices that differed according to status, gender, and race. Even though not all bachelors could marry, marriage remained the norm for whites. In contrast, illegitimate union constituted the standard for slaves. Widespread interracial sexuality also led to the formation of invisible mixed families. But most of the numerous children born to mixed unions remained enslaved and, when, and were not acknowledged by their white fathers. Thus, métissage in Louisiana, as in Saint-Domingue, did not undermine racial formation, and on the contrary, it contributed to reinforcing a system of racial domination. What were the three stages of the transformation of, quote, white labor, indentured servants, convict laborers, etc., in early 18th century New Orleans and Louisiana? In addition, can you explain how perceptions of slavery advancing quote, whites's, i.e. masters's, indolence, shifted to white laborers' refusals to engage in heavy labor, particularly during the 1732 to 1763, quote, uh, democratization of slaveholding. So in chapter six, I demonstrate how labor and race became increasingly entangled in French New Orleans. And I first focus on white laborers whose situation transformed over the French period. Three stages punctuated this evolution. Most white laborers initially came to the colonies as indentured servants, although a few convicts were also among their number. They were not treated as badly as slaves, but the company did manage these laborers in a coercive way to control their labor and force them to settle. When this experiment with mixed labor did not succeed, as many indentured servants and convicts died, ran off, or returned to the metropole, the company decided to expand the slave system on the model of Saint-Domingue in the early 1720s. A second stage then started for the former indentured servants and convicts who had managed to survive. Some settled and set up their own business in New Orleans, which fostered the growth of an urban economy and a regime of free labor, even as the initial system of indentured servitude never completely disappeared. In the following years, the number of white and black workers tended to balance each other. Still, whites remain a large part of the urban labor force. In the last decades of the French regime, a third stage began as the expansion of the slave system allowed some white craftsmen to experience social mobility through the world of white laborers remain characterized by its great heterogeneity. 
In the following section of this chapter, I analyze how the development of a slave society changed the conception white people had of labor. They increasingly refused to perform heavy labor, which became associated with slaves. This association between slavery and heavy labor informed the organization of the colonies corvée. Statute labor, the corvée, was never imposed on white civilians, nor once white militia companies had been established during the Natchez Wars on militiamen. In contrast, in Canada, the peasants who all had to serve as militiamen were the major source of labor for public works. Finally, in the last section, I examine how white urban dwellers fought hard to acquire slaves. At the end of the French regime, 40% of whole, of whole households included slaves. Whereas the development of a slave society benefited many white settlers, the situation did not necessarily benefit enslaved workers. Urban slaves were used in many different capacities to fulfill the needs of the growing population and to take advantage of all the possibilities offered by the port city's expanding economy. Slave hiring in particular helped diversify the urban economy and complicated social relationships based on slavery. The practice, in fact, continued in another way the struggle between slave owners and non-slave holders as it was in the interest of non-slave holders to exploit hired slaves without any consideration for their preservation. Although urban slaves profited from more autonomy and the labor they performed was less exhausting than that done by slaves on plantation, they could still be overworked and abused. How and why did the Louisiana Code Noir, professional as well as non-professional merchants, officials and military personnel, and 18th century commerce provide more avenues for negotiation of trust, reparation, and power in the late 18th century honorable market economy? Further, what were the two forms of slave participation in marketplaces? And why did this participation not enervate ties between slavery and, quote, dishonor? While much much attention has been given to labor in shaping American colonial and slave societies, the significance of commerce has been underestimated, even though it informs social dynamics, including racial formation, in a crucial way, especially in port cities. Trade became the most important economic sector, source of income, and means of social mobility within New Orleans. The general involvement of all urban drillers in trade, from white elites to slaves, had important social effects. Commercial exchanges increased social cohesion as they created social ties. Through trade and credit, most people were trapped in a chain of creditors and debtors and connected by relationships of dependency and obligation. At the same time, Participation in the market was largely determined by status, race, class, and gender, and contributed to segmenting the urban population. Not all categories of commerce 
the import and export trade, wholesaling within the colony and retailing in shops in the marketplace or on the streets were open to all social actors. Slaves, for instance, were only involved in retailing on the account of their masters or to their own benefit. Enslaved peddlers were used to sell foodstuff from the plantation at the urban marketplace. Urban domestic slaves were in charge of purchasing all the commodities their master needed. And plantation slaves also came to the city on Sundays to sell corn they grew and poultry they raised on their individual lots. Apart from openly selling and buying commodities from their master or for themselves, they fueled an informal market economy based on theft. Despite restriction on, on who could be involved in the various forms of trading, the rise of commercial activities provided a set of circumstances in which social and racial boundaries were more easily negotiated. At the end of the French regime, the quest for fortune, dignity, and independence that animated many participants in the market had given birth to a distinct, powerful corporate body of self-identified white merchants and traders, and a much smaller discrete groups of quasi-free persons of color who had been able to illicitly purchase their freedom. More globally, the importance of trade had succeeded in challenging, if not completely eradicating, the traditional conception of commerce as an infamous occupation. The participation of the enslaved in the market and cash economy necessarily integrated them within the economy of owner and credit in the sense that trade operated on the basis of trust, reputation, and power, but their involvement did not weaken the long-lasting association whites made between slavery and dishonor. The participation of slaves in the market economy, either on their master's behalf or for their own benefit, was viewed as a completely different matter to that of free people. According to the Connoir, they could not legally sell or buy anything without a certificate from their masters. This legal requirement was not strictly observed, but colonists disagreed about the need to let slaves participate in a market economy. Slaves were also often prosecuted for theft, and in fact, the black slaves quickly became the archetype of the thief in the colony. Please briefly trace the discourses of race and racial categories in 18th century New Orleans legislation in the Code Noir, addressing Native American mobility and ideas, myriad African slaves, free people of color, and degrees of metissage. If possible, please also explain how and why judicial proceedings as well as punitive measures changed in focus from white civilians to, after the 1723 resumption of the slave trade in the 1760 Superior Council rulings, slaves themselves. In Chapter 8, I use all primary sources available from censuses to judicial proceedings to analyze how all institutional and social actors use racial categories. It's impossible to quickly summarize the history of racial categories. What I can say is that racial categories were available from the beginning as they were brought from the anti. They immediately informed colonist vision of the social order. 
under the influence of the Caribbean, race and status quickly became the primary markers of identifications. For instance, court records show that people in daily life always identified a man of mixed descent as a mulatto. Racial categories describing degrees of métissage became more complex over time. Missionaries in particular pay much attention to these racial categories when they recorded the baptism certificates of enslaved infants. Whiteness was constructed in opposition to both blackness and what we can call savageness, as well as in reaction to métissage and the rise of a population of free people of color. Yet by the 1760s, free blacks were still viewed as an anomaly that only slowly started to disturb what had amounted to a biracial order between whites and blacks for much of the French regime. The language of race both informed and were shaped by a discriminatory system of public justice. Despite possible circumstantial tensions over the way slaves should be individually punished, a large collective consensus quickly formed among whites with regard to the administration of justice. Globally, central authorities, local officials and settlers share the belief that the Superior Council, that is the sole judicial court in New Orleans, should support the consolidation of the slave system and the enforcement of the strict racial order. As evidenced by the social identities of the individuals who were brought before the bench, the crimes for which they were prosecuted, the punishments to which they were sentenced, and the status of the executioner who carried out sentences, the court succeeded over time in implementing a biracial judicial order that largely spared whites, targeted black slaves, and mostly ignored free people of color. Judicial violence was staged to imprint terror and instill obedience among the slave majority, while saving the lives of most enslaved laborers who were much needed in the colony where early enslaved ships arrived from Africa after 1741. It was only in the early 1760s that the level of judicial repression reached a new stage when magistrates, led by a new attorney general, multiplied convictions, resorted to judicial torture, and condemned slaves to some of the most terrible forms of death, of death sentences. And this theater of legal violence expressed ambitions on the part of the colony's local elite to assume a greater role in the administration of New Orleans and of Louisiana as a whole. Similarly, please briefly elucidate the 18th century enlistment of free peoples of color in militia companies that culminated in, after 1762, the segregated, and I quote, Company of the Free Mulattoes and Negroes of this colony of Louisiana. What is the significance of this company's collective biography, surnames, living circumstances, and that 1769 Spanish loyalty ceremony, especially in the context of socio-racial marginalization? Most historians of Louisiana believe that a regular militia company of free men of color became a reality during the second expedition against the Chicasso in 1749-1740 and that this company remained in active duty over the last decades of the French regime. 
In contrast, my book demonstrates that this company was institutional institutionalized only at the end of the Seven Years' War in the early 1760s. When the Spanish imposed their rule for good on the colony in 1769, they asked all the corporate bodies of the colony, including the Free Color Militia Company, to sign an oath of allegiance to the King of Spain. Thus, the archives include an exceptional document, a list of 34 militiamen of color with their signatures or marks in the document. I have tried to reconstruct the lives of these 34 men as much as possible, and their collective biography over the course of the French regime offers insight into the motivations that led them to join the segregated militia company. Unlike their counterparts in the cities of Saint-Domingue in the 1760s, free people of color in New Orleans far from constituted a great demographic and socioeconomic force. Many remained dependent on their former master, living with them and working for them. Only a few were able to live on their own within the city or on farms in a segregated settlement and the English turn down river. Most of them did not own slaves. This meant seized the opportunity offered by the establishment of the military institution to reduce their social racial marginalization, lessen their dependency on their former master, and consolidate their social position within the free population of color. Service in the militia afforded some free men of color the possibility of being recognized as living an honorable life of their own, and they achieve honor through both military service to the king and the economic independence associated with land ownership. Militia duty also gave them the possibility to activate old networks and create new ones, particularly for the most prosperous and socially integrated members of the units whose signatures or mark appeared recorded at the top of the 1979 oath. These men were the officers of the first color militia company, and the incorporation of other militiamen into the company as regular soldiers might have been the result of the mobilization of their own network of alliances among free men of color. On the one hand, as free color militiamen succeeded to distinguish and elevate themselves above slaves, on the other hand, they had to accept to remain segregated from white people. I'm interested in the contours of ethno-labels in New Orleans. You can address one or all of the following um, in shaping these ethno-labels. Race, the metropolitan French language, xenophobia and hostility to Canadians, uh, Creole classification and perspectives thereof, persistence of the references to African nations or countries, those purported Bambara conspiracies, and an increase in, quote, unruly Caribbean slave imports. In the last chapter of the the book, I trace the emergence of a sense of place among New Orleans residents of all conditions through the analysis of the uses of ethnic and national categories. And I demonstrate that the French regime did not witness the birth of a single Creole identity that united all historical actors across racial boundaries. In fact, racial formation prevented the development of a shared relationship to the city between settlers, slaves, and free people of color. 
for colonists, the meaning attached to Frenchness were redefined several times over the French period through the experience of colonization and changing demographic, social, economic, and geopolitical circumstances. Because many migrants came originally from Canada, Frenchness was first constructed in opposition to Canadian identity. A few decades later, Frenchness came to be defined in contrast with the Creole identity that the metropolitan officials and elite imposed on all settlers who were born in the colony, whether they were of Canadian or French parentage, as they questioned their loyalty to the crown. However, because identifying as Creole carried negative connotation, Louisiana colonists born in the Americas did not appropriate this ethnic category for themselves. They never self-identified as Creole. Finally, the renewal of imperial wars in the 1740s and the cession of the colony to the British and Spanish at the end of the Seven Years' War led to a final shift in national identification as settlers claim freshness, not primarily in contrast with a Canadian or Creole identity, but in opposition to Britishness and Spanishness. The judicial archives reveal that ethnic identities were also highly relevant for slaves. Ethnicities forge both solidarities and antagonism among the enslaved. Colonial authorities were well aware of this phenomenon and they paid attention to ethnic identities in trials. The slaves who were tried mentioned their ethnicities, but also the place from which they came, either in Africa or in the Americas, especially in the Antilles. Bombara men and women were able to unite to prepare a slave revolt in 1731, but slaves from different ethnic backgrounds, including Bombaras, who at first experienced chattel slavery in Saint-Domingue, could also maintain special connections in New Orleans. What role did the 1768 attempt to expel Spanish gubernatorial rule, in addition to francophone, francophone expressions and pleas to Louis XV, play in the rise of Louisiana identity, an ethno-label that encompassed both the possibility of re-inclusion in the French Empire, as well as annexation by the heterogeneous British Empire? And what happened to rebel families who fled to Saint-Domingue? The book ends with the revolt against the first Spanish governor in 1768. Although many American colonies experience one or several changes of sovereignty, Louisiana is the only one where a diplomatic session was followed by an, an uprising. Exceptional circumstances might partly explain this uncommon event. The treaties of Fontainebleau and Paris divided Louisiana between the Spanish and the English in 1762-1763. But the Spanish did not arrive in New Orleans until 1766, whereas the English immediately took possession of the left bank. Even then, the first Spanish governor, Uloa, delayed holding a formal ceremony imposing the sovereignty of Spain on the former French colony, owing to a lack of military force. 
For several years, the French captain Charles-Philippe Aubry, who had acted as governor since February 1765, ruled the colony in the name of the King of France as if it belonged to the King of Spain. In this highly ambiguous political context, aggravated by a heavy financial crisis, the Spanish promulgated a new ordinance forbidding settlers to trade freely with metropolitan France and the French Antilles. In response to this ordinance, a large section of the Louisiana capital's white population and that of its surroundings, headed by the magistrates of the Superior Council and other members of the elite, rose up in revolt. In a few days, without causing bloodshed, they expelled Uloa. In all the texts written by the rebels to justify themselves, they never called themselves Creole as they wished to stay within the French Empire and claim their Frenchness. Still, in the midst of the revolt, they invented the ethno-label Louisiane or Louisianan to identify themselves and express their attachment to what had become their new fatherland as the French king refused to change his decision to give to uh, give New Orleans and the western part of Louisiana to Spain. Faced with this refusal, the insurgent envisioned joining the British Empire or proclaiming their independence and establishing an independent republic. But the rebellion was matched by the arrival of Governor Alejandro O'Reilly at the head of a military force in August 1769. To escape from the consequences of the repression of the rebellion, the families of some of the right insurgents took refuge in Saint-Domingue. They chose the island because they knew the place well. In the following years, they were joined by other colonists of French descent from Louisiana. The refugees were granted land in the vicinity of Jérémy in the district of the Grande Anse. According to the lawyer and writer Médéric Louis Moreau de Saint-Méry, the place where his family settled with their slaves was called Nouvelle Louisiane or Nouvelle Louisiana for some time after their, their arrival. Some of these Louisiana refugees would take part in the Saint-Domingue Revolution and would come back to New Orleans as refugees from the Haitian revolutions in the early 19th century. I have actually one final question. Uh, what's going on with you next? Are you working on any new projects? Anything that you can disclose to us? Yes, of course. I'm working to uh, on two different books. One is a collective volume. It's a world history of slavery uh, written with other colleagues. And uh, the second project uh, is a monograph on suicide in the slave trade and slavery with a comparison between the French and the British Empire from the mid-18th to the mid-19th centuries. We hope you remember the New Books Network for those projects. Thank you. So on behalf of Professor Vidal, the book is uh, Caribbean New Orleans, Empire, Race, and the Making of a Slave Society, published earlier this year by uh, the Amancho Institute and UNC Press. This is Ryan Tripp. This has been a New Books in History production, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.